one. Hey, dragon. You're not as as peppy, I understand. If you please turn to Zechariah chapter 10. find out that our uh, our dear Brianna Johnson is celebrating a birthday today, and they are on with us live, so happy birthday, Brianna. It's a French birthday for you. All right, Zechariah chapter 10. Uh, this uh, message this week, sometimes... Sometimes it's just a difficult week when it comes to sermon preparation. And for whatever reason, this week was one of those weeks. Because I, I, every day I have different segments of things in my routine and what I do. And when it comes to Thursday afternoon or Friday when I'm, all right, now it's time to type the manuscript. And I'm sitting there and I got nothing. <laughs> Mark, I've read, and I'm thinking I have a direction, and I've got like uh, five commentaries that I use, and it's just it's just all this different process. Mark came in, and he just kind of looked at me. He had a notepad. He's like, all right, any themes or anything? I said, I got nothing. Just here. Every time I think I have a direction, I, and then I'm walking in here, which I typically do. I'm asking the Lord, God, give me some clarity. What's the direction? I walk in here. I feel like I have a direction. I go sit down. Nothing. <laughs> so this, this came together just interestingly. I think the Lord, uh, it's, I don't know, I think as we go through it, you'll see how uh, hopefully the Lord wants us. But whenever that happens, I, I sense that the Lord uh, wants, he, in those moments, he's doing something in me that I trust will spill over into our time. And I have, I've been burdened for us as a church uh, that we would live out our identity boldly. And I think we, we have, uh, all of us, we, we find ourselves battling identity crises, not realizing it, blaming it on something else, blaming it on someone else. And we don't recognize that our hearts aren't trusting God. They're not grounded in our trust with God. And so we have this little chaos thing going on in us, not really understanding what's going on. And I think the Lord is bringing unique uh, direction for us as a church, but also individually, for us to seek our identity in Christ, settle our hearts, so we're not the chaos can calm and we're not running back and forth, back and forth, trying to figure out who we are. So I do think this will, this will edify us as it's been a, a reminder for me as well. Uh, verse 1, chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rains, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain. To everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. 
They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock and the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the street. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord. Then they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Lord, help us today. Help us and strengthen us as your children. Remind us who we are. Would you please remind us who we are and settle our hearts in you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Recently, I saw a sign that said, not all those who wander are lost. I'm trying to figure out where, I think I saw it maybe on the chalkboard over in front of St. John's Coffee House. And it's sitting in front of there at a red light. And I just thought, oh, it's a kind of curious way of just a cultural self-discovery statement. Not all those who wander are lost. We're trying to find ourselves in a I did some research to where that came from and was surprised that that line is from a poem from J.R.R. Tolkien in his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And the, the poem is in your notes. It reads, all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes of fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Now you read the context, and this poem was given to Frodo by his uncle uh, Bilbo Baggins. So 
Frodo would be able to identify the long the long-awaited king of Middle-earth, Aragorn. So the poem, Not All Those who, who Wander Are Lost, was for Frodo to recognize who the king was. Now, as we've been studying Zechariah, we've been given clue after clue after clue after clue about the king of kings that would come. Jesus would be revealed, and every clue is supposed to help us understand who Jesus is. Now, it's the glory of God to conceal things, and it's the glory of kings to search them and find them out. There's a glory that God has in just giving clues, because we say, why don't you just make it plain? Just write it in the sky or something. God says, I don't work that way, because there's a, there's a particular, a peculiar glory that's coming about, because God wants us to trust his promise so we will see his word, ultimately see Jesus. God doesn't come giving, you know, Jesus, here's his, here's his name, rank, serial number, so you know who he is. Just look at his dog tag and you'll find out who the, who the Messiah is. He doesn't do that on purpose. He wants us to grow in our trust of him. God's revelation is given alongside from faith for faith, so we trust him. This chapter is uh, part of a, a bigger sermon for Zechariah, verses 9 through 11. And in it, God speaks to his people to remind them of who they are. The salvation he has promised and which is fulfilled in Jesus is to be identified by his people forever. And part of our identity as Christians, sorry, I need a, part of our identity as Christians is anticipation. We live as believers looking for something. And it's always been that way. Remember Abraham left, didn't know where he was going. He was living in anticipation of what God would fulfill. And then in Hebrews, we learn that he always lived in anticipation because he never saw what God promised here on earth because he was looking for a heavenly city. So part of the, part of the DNA of faith is to live with an anticipation that looks for what's coming Eventually, and that's, we looked at a few weeks ago, the now and the not yet components of salvation. But every time we think about our salvation, it should be accompanied with glory. That we, God reminds his people over and over and over again, there's a glory about which we live under, that we are supposed to live from out from under, so we can live as God's redeemed. We have an identity, and our identity is redeemed. That is the banner that's over us. That's the caption phrase for our lives. It's the hashtag, the tagline, whatever, whatever phrase we need to be thinking about to identify who we are, redeemed should come to mind. Because that's what comes to God's mind when he thinks about us. And God's redemption secures our identity in Christ. This chapter, I see the gospel, the simple gospel story from the first section, verses one through five, the chaos of misplaced trust and faith in ourselves rather than God. And then the next six through 12, the second half is all that God does to save us and keep us in his glory until he comes again. Now, we rehearse the story. We rehearse the story as we sing 
worship songs. We rehearse the story as we see it unfold in one another's lives. But listen, rehearsing the story of God's redemption reminds us of our identity and engages our trust in God. It also appropriates our trust, meaning we trust God for particular things in our lives. Rehearsing the story of redemption causes us to trust God rightly. We trust him correctly. Now, the first, as I said, the first five verses look at a, a, a chaos of misplaced trust. And how this unfolds, there's just some observations I made, and those are those bulletin, uh, bullet points. God speaks a correction to his people in the first part of this chapter. They've been seeking rain from false gods, the Baal, Dagon, the god of the Philistines, and Baal, the god of the northern uh, territory of the Canaanites, rather than from the only one who sends rain. Now, we look at this and think, how you have God. You had God in his glory, yet you tried to go a, 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 a secondary route in order to get the provision of rain so your crops would grow. But every, every one of God's people face the same exact temptation, and we face that same exact temptation every day. We are tempted to go to secondary things in order to get something that we think will matter or be provision for us in our lives. And God is calling us to, uh, he calls to every one of us again and says, stop going after the secondary route. And we ask, when will we learn? We have to trust him. I think the first observation we see in those first five verses is that seeking provision outside of God results in false worship. Whenever we look to other things in our lives to provide us what only God can give us, we are idolaters. We're worshiping falsehood, we're worshiping an idea, uh, maybe an image that we think would be good, we end up worshiping what we see rather than what we don't see in God. And then we invent household idols. We invent stuff and then we keep them and think, I just have to have this with me all the time. Whether that be an idol of victimization, pity, or the idol of pride boasting of what we have and what we've done. Maybe it's uh, household idols of just the way we've always done things and we don't let God speak into them. Uh, the the uh, household idol of self-protection. We do everything in the name of protecting ourselves. The idol, uh, household idol of advancement. Do whatever we have to do to advance. The household idol of reward. I do everything for a reward right now that makes me feel a particular way in my life rather than trusting God for who he is. So seeking any type of provision outside of God results in false worship. And then false worship produces an unreliable wisdom. Utter nonsense, it's told. For the verse 2, for the household gods, utter nonsense. And diviners see lies and they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. So everything that we think we're going to get from that idol ends up turning out just to be empty. We don't have a wisdom that's reliable then. We don't feel satisfied. We become self-reliant. We end up following our unchecked desires, our unchecked cravings. So when we worship falsely, it leads to unreliable wisdom, and unreliable wisdom creates an unsettled identity. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. 
We wander when we chase after idols. We lose our identity. And we, we churn up this chaos in our lives, and we wander in chaos, and that becomes frustrating, and then it perpetuates the whole thing again. But we cannot be deceived to thinking that, oh, all those, uh, not all those who wander are lost. Yes, we're lost. We're trying to find our way. We can't figure it out. Jesus wandered on this earth because, remember, he said he didn't have a place to lay his head. Every following him meant you just give up everything and follow where he is. He was a wanderer. He wasn't lost. But whenever we go after false worship, false idols, guess what? We're lost. And there's a chaos that ensues in our own hearts, and we can't figure out which direction to go then. Because then unreliable wisdom, when it creates an unsettled identity, an unsettled identity leads to bad choices. And here's where that happens. Look at verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. What's he telling them? You chose bad leaders. When you go after and start uh, wandering, and, and all you're doing is following your unchecked desires and cravings, you got a little identity crisis happening, then you're going to make bad choices. And your bad choices are going to come in the people that you listen to. The people that you listen to, those, the word for leaders is he goats. They weren't even listening to the shepherds. They were listening to the, the goats around them, telling them which direction to go and what to do. Our identity crisis, crises, are the result of misplaced trust. We need to be careful not to choose the wrong leaders, not choose the wrong shepherds when we're worshiping the wrong thing, because we will promise here like God always promises. And that's, that's a gospel story for us because whether it's before Christ or the struggle that we have now in Christ, we are always seeking to worship something not God. Uh, Romans 1 tells us we're always facing the temptation to exchange the glory of God, to take the glory that is God's and put it on a creature, a created thing, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. This glory exchange we're looking to do that glory exchange because we want, we'll do self-worship. We'll do other person worship. We'll worship an idea. We've got to make sure we don't make those, we don't recognize that our bad choices comes from not knowing who we are. It's an unsettled identity. Then, uh, so, but this also means we've got to pay attention when, when we get into that morbid introspection time in our lives, uh, th those moments, uh, those seasons, we have to make sure we're putting the right stuff in our heads in that moment. Because we can put the wrong words in our head, even if it's our own words. We're just listening to ourselves constantly and constantly beating ourselves down, or we just choose the wrong wisdom in that, in that moment. We've got to choose rightly. We've got to listen for the Lord. Because God promises to restore the chaos of hearts with his cornerstone. Verse 4, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Jesus' life and resurrection, we know uh, through the scriptures, Jesus is that cornerstone. That's how God is getting us back to him over and over and over again. So whenever we feel frustrated and, and we're having an identity crisis in our lives, you know where to go? To Jesus, again. 
It's not, well, God, I know about the Jesus thing. Give me something else. No, it's still Jesus. We're always coming back to Jesus. And it's the best, the best news that we can ever hear in our moment of despair, sorrow, uh, victimization, or pity, or, or boasting. We need Jesus. Because his life and his resurrection, it gives parameter and scope to our growth and our pursuit of God. He defines us. It's all about him. Ephesians 2, we have the promise. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus sets, just like that cornerstone that's placed first for the building, sets the, sets the dimensions and sets the parameters for what the building, Jesus is that for us. He's the leader. Now, the, the shepherd part, when he promises him, God promises to be the shepherd of his people, we'll look at in chapter 11, because that's, as he's condemning, the bad shepherds and pointing to the good shepherd. But we need Jesus, always. And then there's a promise of a restored heart that's empowered for battle. Oh, this is from the tent peg. Listen, we, we are, we're always looking for the promise of relief from all of our troubles in this life. And we never get that promise. We always want the promise that God's going to take us around difficulty rather than through it. But all of scripture, when we put it together, shows that God doesn't take us around every time. Sometimes he does, just because he's merciful. Most of the time, he says, I'm going to be with you as we go through it. We're never promised a hard life to be removed until heaven. That's when we're promised that. But we have a tent peg, he says, to support us, a battle bow for preemptive attack. Now, that tent peg could be one, that the stake that goes in the ground that pulls the tent larger or pulls it tight so it can stand strong. But this tent peg is also a picture of a tent peg that's put in a stone wall that you hang things on. So what God is saying is that cornerstone will be a support. A support first to strengthen and pull something taut, but also a support that you can carry your burdens to him and put your burdens on that tent peg over and over and over again. He is that battle bow. He's the word that lights, or that fires those arrows. And we put our burden on Jesus as we go strong through the battle. And the promise then that God is with us. Verse 5, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe of the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. Again, we're not promised around. We're promised through, but God's presence is with us. And like we've learned before, He's the one fighting the battle. Our posture is to worship properly, to worship and trust rightly. But it, is all, it all circles back to verse 1. Look at the first three words. Ask, well, five. Ask rain from the Lord. 
But God calls to us and says, and even in the correction, there's grace. You can come back. See, I think part of our identity crises that we have in life is that we think that God at some point is just so frustrated and infuriated with us that he just won't take us back that far. Or we have to do some extra work to get back in his good graces. And it's simply not God's redemption. It all starts with asking God for the provision that he's already promised to give us. Now he says, ask me, I send all the rains. I send the early rains in the beginning of the spring when you first put those crops in the ground, and I send the, the latter rains to make the, 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 the crops fresh and robust. I send it all. But here's our problem. You know, harvest takes months, nine, ten months. We want to put something in the ground and immediately have a response. We don't want to wait for it at all. And God says, you've got to wait. Because if he just gave us all the provision, we're not going to trust him because we're little bratty kids. And whenever we get something that we want, we go enjoy it. And then we come back and say, can I have some more of that? Because I really just enjoyed what I had. And I don't really want you. But God, in his wisdom, says, I'm going to let time exist in between the rain. So you learn me, and you learn to trust me. Our identity is in the anticipation. Our identity is in the waiting. So we wait for him. Now what, he wants us to always be in a, in a posture of dependence and trust, always. So in our lives, when we feel like we are doing okay, you got to be careful. I'm doing okay. Wait a minute. Take heed lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wait a minute. We, we, always, we always must be in a posture of dependence and trust. But here's the promise from James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It will be given to him. My, my favorite part of that is that he gives generously to all without reproach, meaning he doesn't remind us of how many times we wasted the wisdom that he gave us already. He gives generously to us. And then verse 6 through 12, I think, is the, the posture. This is the covering of how we are to live as God's redeemed. And the first thing is we recognize how many times God says, I will. It's a lot. I will. I will strengthen. I will save. I will bring back. Uh, I will answer. I will whistle. I will bring. I will bring. I will. Recognize the sovereignty of God in salvation. Recognize God's power in coming after us. He will do it. And we're, we're to respond. Salvation is all God's work. Then the what we also see is that God's works, God works from his compassion for his people. In verse 6, the second half, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. I think oftentimes we are, I think I said this last week too, we, we are more in touch with what we think is God's seriousness about our relationship with him. Like this is serious. You've got to start obeying and do it right rather than his smile over us. You, are, do you know God's love for you? 
Because if, if we're having identity crises, we don't know his love. We think he loves somebody else more than he loves us. We think we're unlovable. We're, we're more aware of our shortcomings and our failures than in his redemption. And really understanding justification. And understanding that he really did. He said not guilty when we trusted him for salvation. And he meant it. He means what he says. But he loves his people. Look at Isaiah 54. And overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord your redeemer. Jeremiah 31, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And Jesus said in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You hear the Lord saying, stop waiting to be loved by me. Embrace my love for you. When we see, and he says, I bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. God restores. This is a picture of justification. He restores us to a relationship with him that's better than what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. He restores us to fellowship with him. And he brings us into the fellowship that he has as God expressed in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This kind of infinity sign, think of it, it's, it's this mutual affirmation, encouragement. It, it's deference to the other. It's humble. It's loving. And God says, I welcome you into that. But we spend our time fighting to be in it because we don't think we're in it rather than know. No, God, when I trusted you, you forgave my sins. You justified me, and you welcomed me into that fellowship forever. All of the fellowship that we experience with God right now is just increasing our appetite for the day that we'll be in heaven to experience it forever. We'll experience it forever. We have fellowship with God. The Bible says we have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with God. And then what should be the result? Joy. Verse 7, then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice. And look, the, the, the tension that we live in is the sorrow and heartache that we experience and the suffering that we experience sometimes on a daily basis and the joy that God gives us. And we think, how, these aren't mutually exclusive, and that's how we treat them. If I have sorrow, I don't have joy at all. And if I have joy, then I wouldn't have any sorrow. It just doesn't work that way. We're, Spurgeon said, we're a strange, contradicting mix of contradictions. When we live life, we experience suffering, but joy 100% of the time. And that joy, even if it's looking, joy allows us to look beyond what we're experiencing. It doesn't, it doesn't get so intricate and involved in what we have, what we're doing right now. Joy lifts our eyes and gets us to look out a little bit, even if it's, you know, the, the psalmist says, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That, that's not sorrow lasts for the night, so just go to sleep and joy will come. No, that's a long night. The psalmist says, but look out. Joy 
joy causes us to look for it and see it, even if it's in the moment that we say, God, I'm looking for the moment that I'll feel the joy that I know I have and wait for our feelings sometimes to catch up with the reality and the truth of who we know God to be. Just because we're suffering doesn't mean we don't have joy. Because sometimes that joy is not just looking forward in hope, it's a settledness in our hearts of God's, God's salvation for us and his sovereignty over us. That we simply say, he's God. He's God. And I'm looking, I'm looking for the tears to stop one day so I can experience the joy in fullness. So, so outwardly reflects what I'm, uh, I'm experiencing on the inside. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That thief, that's the enemy, and and that's the household gods. But then he says in verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. These are my redeemed. And we have this weird combination of gathered sojourners. This whistle that he's talking about uh, references shepherds in the context of shepherds. Each shepherd, and this is, you think of King David when he's playing um, the, whatever instrument, whether it was a harp or something that he was playing, he's playing typically his own tune that his sheep recognize. I read a uh, story of a, a guy who was interviewing a shepherd, and he just would be on a hillside, and he's watching sheep just wander off. And sheep are dumb. And they're just, they're going to get into trouble at some point because they keep on following each other. Are you going over there? I'll go over there too. Okay, we'll go over here. Oh, it's a cliff? Oh, we lost three. They just keep on. But when he recognizes they're getting beyond his, his capacity for safety, he plays his tune. And they all hear it. And they come back. So here's what I want us to think about. God has tune for you because he loves you. And he plays that tune. So we say, God, I'm coming back. I'm not going to wander anymore. I'm coming back. That's how God gathers us. He gathers our hearts. And he gathers us to himself first in, in salvation experience when we trust Christ, repent of our sins and trust Christ for salvation. But he also does it over and over and over again as that song that he's singing loudly over us. It's his song particularly for us because he's calling us to himself over, and he doesn't tire doing that. He's not irritated. He's not going out there, let me get this song, do it real fast. No, he's singing over us so we can hear him. He's singing his song that's uniquely written for each one of us. And he says, In verse 9, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. This word scatter is the same word for planted. Because you look, you look at the rest of this chapter, and God's saying, I I scattered people, I scattered my people, but in my scattering, like a, a, a sower goes out with the seed going like this, he's scattering seed, but it's on purpose to plant to produce crops and fruit. So God's saying, I spread my people everywhere. So my gospel would be known everywhere. I'm spreading them out. I'm scattering them. Yes, it was in 
he, he said to his people, it was in, uh, because they were defiant and rebellious to him, he scattered them. But he also said, but now I'm going to turn your rebellion on its head, and I'm now going to use it for gospel proclamation. So wherever you are, wherever you're scattered, that's where you're planted to be a revelation of the glory of God. This is another aspect of living in anticipation. We live in anticipation of Jesus gathering. He gathers uh, us spiritually, our hearts over and over again, but one day he will gather all of us together. As we saw at the end of chapter 9, when, when, the, when God is saying Jesus is going to come a second time, and he's going to gather everybody when he rides on that white horse. And in the day that he gathers, there's going to be a final release from oppression. Egypt and Assyria represent the oppression of sin for God's people. Jesus, Jesus is the one that passed through the sea of troubles. Look at that verse 11. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. We see Jesus accomplishing all of that. In his ministry on the earth, he passes through the sea of troubles, so he will be salvation for all of God's people, and also he will be with his people in salvation as they walk out life, because there's a walking. Look at verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name. We walk in Jesus' name. It's like we know the truth of justification and God declaring us righteous and forgiven of all of our sins and he punishes us no more. We have sanctification now that we walk in, that, that we are looking to become more and more like Jesus in our everyday life. And that means deny ourselves, our, our unchecked sinful cravings, check them in light of the glory of the gospel and the cross of Christ so now we can grow in his image day after day. And that's a battle. That's why there's battle language in this chapter. It's a struggle, and it's battle. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we know, would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the battle of sanctification. Positionally, we are with Christ. We have been crucified with him. Practically, we're becoming like him more and more and more as we seek him, as we trust him, as we turn from the chaos of our own wandering crises that we make because we're searching for an identity, and we turn to Jesus. We hear his call over us over and over and over again, and we say, yes, Jesus, I want you. I want you among the troubles and the waves. That Jesus walked on them to show his power that he walked with us. We look to him. Jesus walked where we walk. And he stays with us in our walk. So he's in the battle. He's in the battle with us. Why? And, and so we remain strong. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and he or Jesus tells Peter, um, the, the enemy, the devil has asked permission to sift you as wheat. But I, what did Jesus tell him? I have prayed for your faith, and it may not fail. There's battle. There's battle for faith. Jesus, our intercessor, prays for us. But listen, there will be a final deliverance when all the oppression, all the sinful tendencies, everything goes away. We don't struggle anymore with sin. 
no impure thoughts, no impure motives, everything holy, like God himself. What a day. But listen, we, we pursue that day knowing who we are. We are his redeemed. So we live from that identity. We don't struggle to get our, we don't live for our identity. We live from it. We live out from under the covering of God's redemption. And we say, that's the banner over me. And I live that out in everything I say and everything I do. So where is there chaos happening in your life? We learn from God's word that the chaos is most probably the result of a misplaced trust. What are you trusting in that only God can provide? And now, put on, he saves. So we don't have to put our trust anywhere else. He took care of our greatest need. So now we can trust him for all the little needs in our life. This is the picture of uh, when Jesus, the, the paralytic, the fr- four friends make a hole in the roof and they put their friend. Jesus looks at them, sees their faith and says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He's paralyzed. What does the sin have to do with it? Forgiveness. Have... No, Jesus is saying, I'm taking care of his greatest need. His greatest need is not to be able to walk right now. His greatest need is to be forgiven of his sins. And from that great forgiveness, that God meeting our greatest need, he meets all the other needs. Now, he meets them in a varied amount of varied ways, but he meets all of our needs. And we can ask him. Ask him for rain. Ask him for rain, but understanding that we want, he wants us to understand who he is more than just give us the provision that we're asking for. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you, by your spirit, have caused your word to sink into our hearts. And now, Lord, we ask that it would it would change our hearts, that there would be the grace of conviction, the grace of Uh, the sustaining grace of change would come about, that we would trust you. We would trust you with everything and not hold anything back. Because, Lord, we're, we're looking, we're asking for the rain and the joy of God to be our strength. But ultimately, Father, we ask that you would show us. You're with us. You're with us. No matter what our feelings may say, no matter what the the lies of the enemy and the utter nonsense from household idols, whatever we're we're looking to other than you, it's nothing. It's empty. We trust. We come to you. We have everything. Holy Spirit, finish and complete this work so our identity is grounded.